Good morning. Uh, this morning we are starting in Acts. Um, so we're going to do Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All right. Check one. All right. Good morning. Everybody all right? Good. I did my best to make it feel like fall in here. I had leaves on the wall and it's cold. That's all I got. Man, it's like 95 outside. Okay. So, starting a new book today. Um... Settle in. We'll probably be here for a while, and it's an amazing book. It's this massive, epic journey um, of the early Christians, and so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to start off with sort of the who, what, where, when, and why, and how, and how often of the, of the book of Luke, like of the book of Acts. Um, what is it? Um, and we're going to talk all about that for a bit, and then second half of the service is going to be about the ascension, about this bizarre thing that's going on down here on the bottom half of this passage. Um, what does it mean? What is really happening? How are we to understand this? Um, and why is Jesus blasting off into space? So we're going to do that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then, uh, and then we're going to jump in, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for everything that you have, uh, have given to us. We woke up this morning, every one of us here, um, with life in our bodies, breath in our lungs. Um, we woke up with, uh, with food to eat and clothes to wear um, and a place to go, people to gather with, and a way to get there. And all of it is a gift. The whole thing is a blessing. I pray that this morning we would, we would see that and that we would receive it. I pray that we would respond um, accordingly, that we would uh, praise you and, and thank you for the, the gift of life. All of history has led us to this very moment right here, and that's a, a huge thing to think about and be thankful for, that, that here we are as your people, um, as the church bearing your name and your identity as Christians. Um, awaken us to what you have for us this morning. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so I'll try to move fast through this first part so it doesn't get monotonous. Who, why, and what are the questions I'm going I'm to start with. So who? Who wrote the book of Acts? Um, very easy to understand. Uh, his name was Luke. Uh, he was a physician. He was not a disciple of Jesus. He was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. Um, he likely wasn't even um, 
a follower of Jesus, not in the literal disciple sense. He likely wasn't even a follower of Jesus when he started doing the research for these books. He's running around and he's getting eyewitnesses and he's learning about their stories and there actually comes a point, and I'll point it out to you when we get there. In the middle of the story, suddenly Luke stops saying they, the Christians, and Luke suddenly starts saying, and then we did this. And so somewhere in the midst of this, it appears he became convinced that this was the way to go. And so if you ever hear people argue that like, oh, the Bible is just written by a bunch of people who already believed this thing and they agreed to this and then they wrote what they already believed. Luke is the perfect case in point for that, like against that. Like Luke was not, when he wrote, he wrote the, the gospel of Luke before this, um, he was likely not a follower of Jesus in any way. Not even, not even, he's not even Jewish. Um, so he's a Gentile, he's a physician, which means he's well-educated, which means he can read and write, which makes him the perfect person to do scholarly works and write historical accounts in the first century. Um, okay, so um, let's talk about the, uh, what is it? So um, Luke, uh, the book of Acts is part two of a two-part series that Luke wrote. The first one is called the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it is the story of, uh, uh, of, of Jesus and um, his his work in the world, his life, death, his teachings, his burial, his resurrection. Acts is part two. So it's sort of like a, they're about the same length. They're both about the length of a scroll. Um, so they're, they're very long books. Um, Luke, you'll notice in both books, especially in the gospel, you'll notice that Luke has different accounts than Matthew or Mark do. He's talking to different people. He's getting different source material when he writes his account of the things of Jesus. Um, he is also using Mark. As a, source, uh, as a source document as well. So you'll see him at some points quote Mark directly. Um, all of that doesn't necessarily matter for what we're going to be doing here. I just, I just find it fascinating. Anyways, um, so Acts is part two. Um, if you read the book of Luke and you read it straight through and then you start reading Acts, there's this flow uh, and there's a continuation. And I'll, I'll point out more things about that um, once we get going. But the question that a lot of people have is, what is the genre of different books? Or as Alex Trebek would say, the genre of these books. Um, what is the genre? Um, how, do we, uh, how do we know if this is supposed to be history? Is it poetry? Is it a first century epic? Is it something that's sort of like a giant parable that we're supposed to, about a fictional character that we're supposed to read and be inspired to live better? Um, what is the point of this book? Well, to, to answer questions like this, um, you would come at it the same way that you would come at modern books. If somebody, if you open up a book at the library and it starts, the first, the first words are, um, a long time ago, uh, you know, once upon a time, stuff like that. This is telling you, um, if, if it starts off once upon a time in a place far, far away, that is telling you that this is not history. This is obviously a tale, um, a story, like a fictional story. If it starts like, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It means it's not even in this planet. It's like somewhere, it's a sci-fi book. Um, if, um, if you open it up and it says, I'm giving a historical account, like, and it names dates and places and people, it's giving a historical, so like there's ways we know today when you open a book, whether or not it's poetry, um, whether or not it's history, whether or not it's sort of a fairy tale. It's no different for the ancient world. We're just disconnected from it. So what you want to do is you want to look at other books um, in the ancient world, and you want to look at, at the introduction to Luke, and you want to look at the introduction and say, what else has similar introductions in the ancient world? What a great question. I'm glad you asked. Watch this. There's this guy named Josephus. We know him from last week's uh, sermon. Um, he has a book. He has two books that are a two-part series. The second book starts like this. It says, in, my, in the former book, most honored 
uh, Epaphroditus. I have demonstrated our antiquity and confirmed the truth of what I have said, and I shall now therefore begin a confutation of the remaining authors who have written anything against us. So he starts his book like this. If you open the book of Acts... And you read the very first paragraph. It starts like this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. It's the same introduction. uh, Josephus and Luke are not the only people to use this introduction. It was a regular introduction that was used by historical writers writing historical accounts of events that happened. So we know that this was a uh, historical account. He's getting eyewitnesses, and he tells you this uh, in his book. So that's how it starts. Um, so who was written to? Every book has an audience. Um, we know who was writing it. Who are they writing to? Um, this is an important question because the vast majority of the New Testament, I always try to remind you, is not written to you. Don't be offended. Uh, just because it's not written to you doesn't, does not mean it's benef- not beneficial for you. But, but the vast majority of the New Testament has a specific author to sometimes a single person or a household or a church community or the Jewish people. Or they have specific audiences whom they are writing to. And those audiences matter because there's things that are going on with those audiences that are being addressed. So who is this book written to? Well, it starts off talking about this guy named Theophilus. It says, I'm writing to you, Theophilus. So there are three options for this, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going gonna to tell you which one I think is right. I'm not going to bother laying out a huge argument for it. It doesn't matter. Um, but there's three options. One of them is that there's this very wealthy guy named Theophilus. It's hard to say. Theophilus. And Theophilus is building a personal library, as you would do in the ancient world. And he's wealthy, and he has high status. And the more historical books that he has, the higher up his status would be. He can use this work for, like, rhetorical speeches and stuff like that to impress people and climb the social ladder in the ancient world. So he hires a physician, a well-educated man named Luke, to go out and to find the eyewitnesses, and he basically looks at Luke and says, I want you, I keep hearing about this group called Christians, I keep hearing about this guy named Jesus, I want an account, a historical account of what happened. So he sends him out, he gathers information, meets all these eyewitnesses that knew Jesus and saw the resurrected Jesus, and he writes the book of, of the Gospel of Luke. Then he writes part two, following along with the Christians afterwards in the Christian movement. So it's possible that Theophilus is just this rich guy building up a library, um, and God chose to use him to give us this book. Um, It's an option. Two more options. Another one, there's this guy named Mauck, M-A-U-C-K, and he wrote this very detailed, very convincing book um, that the books of Luke and Acts are a legal defense for Paul's trial in Rome because Paul is standing trial just after the year 60 A.D., and he's going to be killed by the Roman Empire. I don't want to give away the ending, but they're they're going to decapitate him, and they're going to kill him. Did I? Oh, shoot. I just did it. Um, And it's not going to go well. However, you're going to trial. You're going to need a legal defense. What are you going to do? You're going to have a lawyer, um, and you're going to get this lawyer to do some research and write a defense for you. And so there is a good amount of evidence that what you're reading in the books of Luke and Acts are literally a legal document for Roman court. And that is fascinating to me. However... That's not what I think it is. But I, it's, it's a possible option. What I think is going on here um, is, is wrapped up in the name of Theophilus. Uh, Theo is the word for God. Philo is the word for love. 
Um, Philo, uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's where this word's still around. Um, so what I think, honestly, my opinion, and I could just totally be wrong, it doesn't matter. Uh, but what I think he is doing here is he's writing to those who love God. That's what I'm, that's what I'm leaning towards. I think he's writing to, uh, which changes how we interact with the book. Because suddenly this becomes a book that is to you. Because, I mean, do you love God? Well, then there's a book for you. The book of Acts, to those who love God. Um, and the whole point of this book, and this makes sense to me because the whole point of this book is to show you what it means to be a Christian and be a follower of Jesus. Because what this book is, is the account of the people who knew Jesus and who picked up everything that Jesus did after um, the ascension and they carried it on themselves and they got to it, okay? And um, so there's one more thing you need to know about this book, the book of Acts, Though it is a second of a two-part book, the book of Acts itself is broken into two parts. Um, oh yeah, first off, it's written in the it's in the it's written in the year, in the mid '60s A.D. We know this because all the events that are taking place cover 30 years of the um, 30 years of of uh, after basically the the death of Christ, um, and it does not mention the most important thing in Jewish history, which happened in the year 70 AD, which is the destruction of the temple. Roman, Roman Empire comes in and they ransack the whole city of Jerusalem. They burn it to the ground and they slaughter all the Jews. And he doesn't mention any of this, which tells us that it's written between 60 and 70. So I put it right at 65, just to, just to write it right in the middle. Like that's, for me, that's the date. It makes the most sense. Five years to write, you know, gather information and send it around. So um, the book of Acts was broken into two parts. Um, the first part is what happens when the people of God take the message of Jesus being king to God's people in the Jewish territories. What does that look like? What does that accomplish? How do they react? Um, and what goes well and what goes wrong? That's the first half, 1 through 12. The second half of the book is what happens when we leave Jewish territory and we go into the Roman world and we start proclaiming that Jesus is king in a land where Caesar is king and Caesar is Kyrios, Lord, and Caesar is the son of God and Caesar... Um, is the one who sits on the throne and rules as king. What happens then? So we're going to get the full gamut of what it means when you confront God's people with God's own message. Okay? Never went well for the prophets. Um, and then you're going to go into the world, to the empire, and proclaim God's message to the people who already have their own kings. There's the book of Acts right there. That's how it's going to go. That's what we're going to do. Now, what we're going to do now is we are going to Dive into the book and start reading because right at the beginning of the book, Luke does something fascinating. He pans the camera sort of from Jesus and he passes it on to the disciples. It's sort of like a, uh, like a movie where there's been for a long time a single hero and that hero's time has come and gone and that hero is passing his mantle on to the next generation, like the young Spider-Man, right? Um, and so the Spider-Man is like, take this, put it on, and he puts it on, and then, now the kid's Spider-Man for the next generation, right? So this is sort of what's happening here um, at the very beginning. The camera is going to pan because all the, the entire first book, the center character in the book was Jesus, the things that Jesus taught, the things that Jesus did, and the central character in the second book is going to be the church, the people, the followers of Jesus, what they teach and what they do. And... Luke goes um, sort of out of his way um, to connect the two together. So it starts right here in verse 9. And it says, And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So he's being covered with a cloud and moving on. Um, 
I don't have a giant reason to like open up everything that's going on here. Uh, there's, um, I'll do a little bit. So the idea of a cloud uh, is, is again, very Jewish. He's interviewing a lot of Jewish people who understood things in a specific way. Um, the idea of a cloud, the people followed God in the form of a cloud in the desert. The cloud descended upon the temple when God indwelled the temple. And now it appears the cloud is enveloping Jesus and Jesus is going to be taken from them. It doesn't mean that he's being necessarily going up, vertically up. By taking, being taken up, the word, the Greek word here is uh, eparo. And the word eparo means, it, can mean, it means taken. It means exalted. It also is a word that is used for graduates. Like you're going from like high school to like college. Like an, another sort of, it's a whole different way of being. A different position. Um, and so this is a sort of a loaded text filled with meaning for the original people. We read it today and everything is, we're just very literal today and we read it and we're like, well, he's, he went up and out. Um, the fact is in the ancient world, they didn't even believe that you could go up and out because there was a firmament and you would bump your head. Like that's how they believed the world looked. Um, and they believed on the other side of that firmament was where the divine dwelled that the stars in the sky are like lights poked in the firmament and light coming through, um, and that there's gates and there's water up there, and then water comes down when it opens. It's all in Genesis. Um, I'm not a flat earther. Don't worry. I'll keep moving. Um, okay. Um, just think Truman Show kind of thing. That's how they, that's all they understood. It's a giant dome, and it says how. So, of course, they think God is up there. They don't have the same idea of, that we do of cosmology. They had a whole different Hebrew cosmology. Um, um, oh, which reminds me, pretty soon we're going to be posting, I re-recorded the lost audio for our creation evolution reasoning series that we did. Took some time, taught for an hour or so, and re-recorded it, and we're going to be posting that with the visuals at some point, very soon. So I talk about, oh yay, I talk about Hebrew cosmology and how they thought the world looked back then a lot versus how we think the world looked. So um, that'll all be there. Um, let's see, what was I doing? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, this cloud, and we're going to talk about more about what this means in a bit. So, there's this cloud, and he's sort of taken up, and he's, he's just not there anymore, right? And the cloud is, is dissipating and going up or whatever. And verse 10 says, they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white, two men, no description. Is this, is this like a Trinitarian picture, like all three together? Like, what's going on? Is, or are these just messengers? Or just dudes that just accidentally didn't call each other and matched that day. Like, like oh, how embarrassing. We want to say, Two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Uh, and they're like, well, that's where the divine is. We wouldn't do that, right? Okay. Um, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. So there's this dissipation and there's going to be this appearance. Um, in this idea of the ascension, there is so much theology and especially political theology in this passage that we are missing. And we're going to dive into that a bit this morning. But um, there's something I want to point out first is that Luke, um, he does this parallel thing where in, in his first book, in the Gospel of Luke, the Holy Spirit is very active bringing about the birth of Jesus, okay? It's, it literally, he writes that the Holy Spirit brought about the birth of Jesus, and he uses this language. And then in the book of Acts, 
he is very detailed that the Holy Spirit is bringing about the birth of the church, okay? And then you go back over here, and the Holy Spirit is propelling Jesus and leading him into ministry, leading him into temptation in the wilderness, and all of this. Um, and Jesus is always being led by the Spirit. Luke will bluntly say, Jesus was led by the Spirit to this city. Jesus was led by the Spirit to this city. So Jesus isn't deciding. He's literally being led. Um, and then over here, you're going to read in the book of Acts about constantly the apostles being led to different places by the Spirit. At one point, Paul is going to a city, and the Spirit apparently stops him, and he says, and I couldn't go there. The Spirit wouldn't allow me, and I had to go this way. So he's being led by the Spirit. So there's this parallel um, in all of this. And then Luke tells us at the beginning of the book of, 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 of Luke's gospel that he's writing about all of the things that Jesus began to do and to teach, and now he's going to tell us about the things that the church began to do and to teach. He's creating a parallel. Why is he doing this? Because everything that Jesus did, the way Jesus lived, the things that Jesus did are not intended to be something out of our reach and out of our grasp. Jesus is showing us not just what God looks like, but Jesus is showing us ultimately what humanity really looks like. And he's saying, follow me and the things that I am doing, you are to do. And the chief role that Jesus is, is he's the image of God in the way that we were always intended to be the image of God. He's the perfect human being. In other words, you look at Jesus, you know what God is like. He's the full picture of God. So what you're going to see is, is the early church in the world, moving through the world as the image of God. When you look at the church, you see what Jesus is like. They are the body of Christ when they gather together. And when you look at the church, you can gather exactly what they think about Jesus, what Jesus would be like, because they're living this out. They're forgiving, they're spending time uh, serving the poor and impoverished people. They are... They are bringing reconciliation to warring parties. They're healing people. They are teaching and, teach and, and elevating people equally in their gatherings. It's this incredible thing where like what Jesus was, the church now is. There's a reason that these two books go together and when you read them sort of side by side together, you're going to see the same flow in the same things in the same way. So... Jesus' revolution ultimately becomes their revolution, and his mission becomes their mission. His place in the world now becomes their place in the world, um, and Jesus ascends, graduates, and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, and, when, and, and, and just like when we look at Christ, we can see exactly what God was like. When we look at the church, we see what Jesus is like. And in the journey ahead, it's going to get um, arduous. It's going to get difficult. It's going to be this wild ride that we're going to go on, because um, the disciples are now going to head out into this hostile territory and all of these things are going to happen, very dangerous things. Throughout this story, the disciples are going to inherit a name that the world is going to give them. Um, they're going to go to the city of Antioch where they're going to be insulted and likened to a man who was crucified, which is the most shameful thing that could ever happen to you back then. Um, and they're going to take the crucifixion of this Christ and they're going to get, lay the name on them and they're going to call them Christianoi. Oh, look at all these Christianoi. And the Christians are not concerned with status. They're not concerned with their identity. And they love their Jesus. And instead of saying, 
um, instead of like fighting back against the name, they, they hear the name Christianoi and they say, yeah, we are Christianoi. However you think of Jesus, you can think of us that way as well. And this is now going to be our name that we're going to embrace and put upon ourselves. And for 2,000 years now, we have been calling ourselves Christians. And it started here in this book as an insult to the early followers of Jesus who called them little Christs who will in the end meet the same fate and many of them would. Um, They would suffer, they'd be persecuted, they'd be crucified, they'd be run through with swords, they'd be stoned. Um, They would suffer incredible painful things because of what they had learned from Jesus and what they had taught in the same way that Jesus suffered for the things that he did. They're going to align themselves with Jesus in every way. And by the end of it all, many of the heroes in our story will be dead, including Paul himself. But in time, these ideas and these teachings of Jesus are going to seep into the minds of the people all over the empire. And eventually, we will find Paul standing before the emperor himself, proclaiming, you're not the king, there is another king, which will eventually get him killed. This story is epic, and it's huge. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to teach through it. Now, um, I want to go back and talk about this idea of the ascension. Um, what is the ascension? What does it mean? Why did it happen? It, couldn't Jesus have just have turned around and like walked away? He says, I leave you now. Do your thing. And then the music plays, and the credits roll, and Jesus just kind of slow walks away, and they're pondering it, and, and it's beautiful. Um, why? What is this event that's happening? What is this ascension thing? So the ascension starts with a question. Uh, In verse six, it says this. It says, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I want you to think about this question. I want you to think deeply about this question. What are they saying? What does it mean? What is inherent in this question? Um, So, Lord, our king, are you right now at this time going to restore? Okay, restore. So they want something back that they once had. Um, and the kingdom, it's not of Israel, it's the kingdom to Israel. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So the kingdom of God, they believed, rightly belonged to them as a people, as a nation, to Israel. What they're asking, like, there, there was a time, there was a time when, for a small smidgen of their history, they were a great nation. They had... King David, the greatest king they ever had, followed by, uh, succeeded by his son, uh, King Solomon. And they grew wealth, and they were respected by the, um, um, the, the queen of, of, of Sheba and um, the, 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 the rulers of Egypt and all of these different rulers that were respecting them and honoring them. And they felt like they were a leader in the world, and they felt that they were great. And then one day they're ransacked by Babylon, and they go away. Um, their whole city is burnt down. Um, their kings are killed, they're taken into bondage, and they're there for like 400 years, never again to climb to the heights that they were at. So what they're saying is, they're literally saying, are you, are you going to make Israel great again? Are you going to do that now? We were great, are you going to do it again now? When is this going to happen? Um, and also, like, it's the kingdom of God, and they're giving it to Israel. So it belongs just to them, and their huge desire is that they would one day, I mean, they had this, they were raised with this national fantasy, nationalist fantasy. For the most of their history, they had been an oppressed minority now since that great day. Um, and they had always imagined that one day Israel was going to be the top nation in the world again, the head and not the tail, um, for once, in a long time. And they believed that they were going uh, to be the nation through which God would bring his new reality into the world. And it would end with 
Israel, the greatest nation in the world, ruling over the rest of the world and sort of being police and taking care of everything, okay? Um, and all of this hope had ended when Jesus was crucified. They lost all of that hope. It was all gone. Apparently, Jesus is not the guy that is going to do it. We're going to look for our next Messiah. And some of the disciples, they go back to work. They go fishing and stuff like that. But now, Jesus is back. There's been this miraculous thing. And somehow, he's resurrected. And he's here. And he's standing before us. And we're asking him, now's the time, right? We just need to go get, like, you're our king. And now you're actually back from the dead. So, like, you can't even, like, die. So, we're going to, this is huge. Let's go get some swords and some shields and put on some matching outfits. And let's charge in and conquer Rome. And now establish, kick them all out, and establish our nationalist fantasy that we've always dreamed of. And the world will look to us as this shining city on a hill. Us alone. And so, what does Jesus say? Are you going to make Israel great again now? Are you, are you getting your focus back on us? Jesus looks at them and he says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Okay, that's kind of a yes. I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. It's kind of a yes, but there's a but. Here, even right there, it says but in verse eight. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Okay, first century idea. Witnesses, they go out and they pronounce the gospel. What we talked about last week, that there is a king, there is a new king. It is the, it is the crucified, the buried, and the resurrected Lord. He now has ascended to the throne, and he is our king. So it's the proclamation of a new king. This is what you're going to be. This is how it's going to come. It's not going to come through this violent nationalist uprising. We're not going to kill the Romans. Um, instead, you're going to go to the Romans with this message of a new king. You're going to go to the Jews, you're going to go to the Romans... And then he says, so you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. He's like, they're like, great. So let's go tell the Jewish people. And he goes, and in all Judea. And they're like, okay, it's still Jewish territory. We'll tell them. And Samaria. And they're like, come on, Samaria. Do you know who the Samaritans are? Like, they were this group of people that when all of Israel was exiled, they kind of fled into the mountains and hid out. And they, for 400 years while Israel is in exile, the Samaritans are up there like reinventing Judaism and building their own temple and rewriting the text to make their themselves. It's like this bastardized form of Judaism. It's like, it's like a cult or something of mountain people, right? Why are we bringing them in? Like they've perverted the entire religion. Why are we bringing them in? And then he goes farther and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so the ends of the earth thing, this is a phrase, a Roman phrase. All roads led to Rome. All roads led from Rome to the ends of the earth. This was the phrase. What he's saying is, you're going to take this message to the Romans as well. This is going to be for everyone. This is not just for you. This is universal. This is for everyone. And so suddenly, this nationalistic utopia that they dreamed of was dying. And they realized, and they adapted it pretty quick. Like, they, 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 they picked it right up, and they, okay, so this is going to be different. But I'm going to listen, because this guy was dead, and now he's alive Whatever he has to say matters. And everything he's ever done has been backwards from how we understand it's supposed to be. So we're going to listen and we're going to follow. So he gives them a, a yes, but this is the time for restoring the kingdom of Israel, but it doesn't look like a nationalist military takeover. It looks like you and me bearing witness like ambassadors going out into foreign countries and saying, not only do we have a new king, but actually he's your king as well. And all of this 
starts with the event that is about to happen now, with the ascension. The ascension, um, I want to talk about this for a few minutes. Okay, so the ascension, uh, if you grew up in a non-evangelical church, if you grew up in like a high church, Episcopalian, even Catholic, um, Anglican, um, and some high Presbyterian churches, um, you probably celebrated this thing called Ascension Day. And the rest of you evangelicals are like, what? What is Ascension Day? That's not, that's not a thing. Like, like, we tell the gospel story throughout the liturgical year with three things, and we throw consumerist parties with them. There's, there's, there's Christmas, we buy each other presents. And then there's, um, there's Good Friday, which is, let's not buy things on Good Friday. Um, but it's Jesus' death. We tell it with the birth, and then like, then like the death. It's sad. We're not going to buy things. And then we talk about, we tell it through the resurrection. It's Easter, and we buy eggs. And candy for some reason. Now, um, uh, there's a reason. I'm not going to do it. It's kind of pagan. We're not going to do that. Now, um, however, the ascension is nothing. It means nothing. It's the day that Jesus went away. It's just gone. Okay? It's when he finished his work and he disappeared. Historically, the church has not believed that. Historically, the ascension is important. It came 40 days after Easter. It commemorated the ascension of Christ. And most of us think the gospel story can be told with just Christmas and Good Friday and Easter alone. And that is simply wrong. There's a, a theologian and a pastor that I love. His name is Brian Zond. Um, and he's written a book called uh, Postcards from Babylon. I always recommend this book. Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile. He, he deals a lot with, with um, American Christians and how we are to interact with empires of this world. Here's what he says. Ascension Day is not about Jesus becoming the first astronaut and blasting off into a galaxy far, far away. It is about Jesus ascending to the Oval Office of the universe. That is what the ascension is. That is what it represented to the disciples of Jesus. That's what it was to them. The ascension, the fact that Ascension Day, for a vast majority of Protestant evangelicals, the fact that it's just some random Thursday that we never notice, um, and it just moves on by, and nothing ever happens or nothing is celebrated, um, as most of my life has been, that tells that our gospel is a little bit deficient, that we're missing something. Not just our gospel, but our, our biblical theology and our political theology. Yes, you have a political theology. I have this dorky shirt I wear sometimes. It says, all theology has an adjective. Nobody ever understands it. But what it means is no one is just doing theology. Everyone has a theology where they came from. Um, you have a, either like a, like a Reformed theology or a Protestant theology, a white theology, a black theology, an Asian theology. Everyone, depending on where they came from, has a theology of what salvation through the gospel means for them and their people. Salvation for white people tends to look different when they talk about salvation. It tends to be ethereal, like we talked about last week. It's ethereal, and it's some other thing for some other time. Salvation for a lot of people of color has to do with actual liberation from things that they are being oppressed by. So salvation is not just for later. It's for now as well. Salvation for addicts frees them from this addict. So like, there's different ways of talking about this. You have a political theology, and your political theology teaches you how to interact with the kingdoms of this world, the empires of this world. And this political uh, theology is, believe it or not, tainted by your understanding of simple things like the ascension of Jesus and how you understand that. And so it is vital that we talk about these things and understand what exactly uh, the ascension day is. First off, the ascension is not about the absence of Jesus. Jesus has not left. He is not gone. The ascension, as the name would sort of hint at is about the ascendancy of Jesus, not the absence of Jesus. Otherwise, we would have called it 
absence day. It's ascension day. It's a day where Jesus ascends it, ascends to the throne. It, um, the ascension is, is not about the absence of Christ. It's, it's the ascendancy of Christ, uh, the promotion of Christ to the position of all authority in heaven and on earth. The early Christians knew this, and you can read this throughout the text. Uh, Mark 16, 19, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is not a cosmological location. It's not on the other side of the firmament. It's not some other place. Um, This is a way of speaking. This is metaphor. This is um, ancient poetic language. And it, it is the way of saying that God has now been given all authority in Christ. He's put all authority in the universe in the hands of Christ. Jesus is now king. And the ascendancy is Jesus with his people. He has established his kingdom and he turns and he walks and he sits on the throne. This is how the disciples understood the ascension. He has ascended to the right hand of God. This is the same language that, was, that Caesar used to talk about himself, to talk about his father, even. His father died. He's, you'll see him. There was a comet in the sky, and he wrote and said, that is my, my dad ascending to the right hand of the throne. And now I am now the son of God, and he has given all authority to me. Caesar's using this language to say, I am in charge of all of Rome. Agree with that or suffer the consequences, okay? Um, so the right hand of God is a poetic way of saying that God has now given all authority to Christ. And the ascension of Christ does not lead to the absence of Christ, but to his cosmic presence everywhere. Jesus said this in Matthew 28. He said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's not saying, surely I'm leaving, but I'll be back in just a couple millennia and you will see me soon. Um, He's literally saying, I will never leave you. I will be with you always. Jesus is present here and everywhere. Um, And this is why Paul says, um, He talks about the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. There is nowhere that you can go where you are outside of the reign and rule and presence of Jesus. This is how you are to live your life and think about all of it. He's there with you, speaking to you, guiding you. There is now no place on earth where Christ is not. There is no domain over which Jesus is not Lord. Um, But that is not how most Christians have thought about the ascension over the years. It's not. Um... And this has had a huge detrimental effect upon our theology, especially our political theology, especially our political theology. Because the fact is, if we end the gospel story of Jesus by saying, and then Jesus went off to heaven, which is why he's not here, uh, and someday he'll come back and he'll bring the kingdom. If we say that, then while he's gone, then we're just free to run the world in the way that we want in what we assume is the absence of Christ. This brought Luther, after reading Anselm, this brought Luther to write what's called the dual kingdom theology. That there's another kingdom somewhere else that God's going to bring it here. But in the meantime, we have a kingdom of earth here and our job is to make the earth as moral as possible. Uh, and this is the earthly, this is dual kingdom theology. Dual kingdom theology The Holocaust never would have happened if not for this theology, if I may be blunt. The problems that it has, that it has, that it has dealt out on this world, this idea that Jesus is gone and not here. I mean, one of the, 
I, I, even, even our own denomination, one of, the, uh, one, of the, one of the statements is Jesus is he's, he's Lord and he's our, he's our coming king. And I always say he's our reigning king when they say it. Like he's our, now he's reigning king. Because when you say he's our coming king, you're saying he's not king. You're saying he's like king elect. Like he won, a, like he won some kind of election in November. And then in January, he's going to take the throne. And we're living like, we're like in December. And sometimes it's like December 30th, right? It feels like that. And then like, and we're here, but Jesus is somewhere else. He's picking his cabinet members, right? And he's setting up his administration. And then he's going to come back in and he's going he's gonna to bring it in. It's all going to be revealed. Um, that, is, that is not how the disciples understood the ascension of Christ at all. Um, if we imagine Jesus as being off somewhere else in heaven and waiting to come back someday and begin his reign, then we default to the idea that Caesar needs to rule the world in his Caesar-like way in the absence of Christ. That is a tragedy, that any Christian would think that. The ascension is ascendancy, not absence. Jesus is Lord now, not Lord elect, not Lord gonna be, not Lord someday, but King of kings and Lord of lords right now. And kings and governments of the world are not free to ignore Jesus Christ and his commands so that they can just run the world by some kind of pragmatic, violent, self-interested means that to bring about whatever they want to see happen. Earthly governments are not free to do this. We should be the constant reminder of this. Um, the, the, the role of kings, the, and the kings of the earth, are to be called to submit to the rule of Christ. And the primary role of the church in regards to government is to be a prophetic witness in the name of the Lord Jesus, advocating for peace and mercy and justice. And the church calls, stands up and calls kings and governments to obey Christ by promoting peace amongst the nations, prioritizing provisions for the poor, providing justice for the most vulnerable, and reminding people that the people that you suppose to be rule over, that you think that you are in charge of, are the images of God. And what you are doing to them is an offense to God. And this is the role of Christians in this world. It is not to make America great again or any country great in any sense of the mean. It is to be a prophetic voice to the leaders of everywhere in this world and remind them you are not actually in charge of what you think you are. And we are here to remind you and point out the ways in which you are aligning with the teachings of our true king. And we are here to protest and get in the way of the ways in which you are not aligning with our true king. This is the role of the church. This is why they were rounded up and killed. They weren't rounded up and fed to lions and burned at the stake because they were just really loved God and everyone else hated God. That's not what this was. The gospel was offensive because they were trying to rule the world and we were there reminding them, this is not your world to rule. This is God's world. And his king is Jesus. And his kingdom will have no end. And you will never have the power that you actually claim to have. It will never be yours. It doesn't belong to you. The church calls these governments to obey Christ by promoting peace, to be in the way. The church is not to function ever as some toady to the king, but as a prophetic witness and an embodied presence to the king of kings. It is not to ask, uh, it, is, it, is, it is not the task of the church to, to, to join with them to gain power so that we can sort of, you know, sometimes I think of it like this, like you hear people who are, who are just not generous, they don't have a lot of money, and they don't give any of it away to anyone, they're not generous in any way, they're like, because I don't have enough, but what I'm doing is I'm taking all the extras that I could give, and I'm investing it to build up millions of dollars so that one day I can be like super generous. Um, and my answer to that is, no, 
If you're not generous with little, you're never going to be generous with a lot. It's going to actually get worse. You're going to be more selfish. And it's the same thing that like, I don't have a lot of power, so I'm rubbing elbows with, pow- with power and giving them what they want to hear and sort of serving them so that I can get power and then have a lot of influence in the world. No. By that time, you will be completely corrupt and forget who your king is. How about you speak the truth of Jesus now? But then I'll never get there. Okay. Big deal. That doesn't matter. You speak the truth of Jesus now. Um, But to do this, we must actually believe that Jesus is Lord of the nations here and now, and that all kings and governments and peoples and nations are called to obey the Son of God. This is what the pre-imperial, pre-Constantinian church believed. This is what the ascension meant to them. It is not the day Jesus left and left you and I in charge of anything. It is the day he sat on the throne and asked you to serve him as king. This is what this meant. And we can no longer ignore this. When we speak of Jesus coming again, because look, it says right at the end of today's passage, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, he will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And we read this and we think, okay, he's gone. And when he comes back, then he's going to take the throne is going to rule. Um, when Christ comes again, so this word, this word come for comes again is a single word. It's the word parousia. Everyone say parousia. Yes, okay. So this is a word that was super popular amongst Roman kings and his servants. Um, when a king was going to visit a city, um, it was called a parousia. It is the appearance of the king in the city in which he already rules over. So he's going to leave the capital city of Rome and he's going to travel to the city of Philippi. And when he gets there, um, there's this parousia. There's this, there's this uh, sort of appearing of, but it's not like he is now coming to reign. He already reigned over them and he could put out a decree and wipe them all out if he wants to, okay? But he's coming to see them. And you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna run out to see their king and they're gonna wave palm branches. They're gonna do exactly what, Jesus, what they did to Jesus when he's coming into the temple of Jerusalem, our king has returned, right? And they're going to go out and they're going to say, Hosanna to our king. And they're going to sing and dance. Okay. And, and so there's passages in scripture that says, um, that says we will be caught up and meet him again in the clouds. And sometimes we read that and we're like, oh, it's a rapture and we're going to fly away into space just like he did. We're not. He's, he's coming here to be present to reign. So here's how you think about the second coming of Christ. The curtain is lifted and, and, and these, all we have is metaphors, okay? There's no direct language. All we have is metaphors and ideas for a future uh, reality. The curtain is lifted, and that which has always been is now revealed. That is the second coming of Christ. When, the, when we finally, something l- drops the veil from our eyes, and it becomes obvious to the world that Jesus is the rightful ruler of all of this. And that suddenly, everyone says, you know what? I think he was right. And then the world falls once again fully under the rule of Christ. And they tell us it's going to be bodily. And, you know, all of this, we get so hung up on these little details of how it looks that we forget the actual meaning of it all. This is the moment of judgment. This is, we now have to face how we have lived under the reign of Christ. Okay? Um, when, when it says that he will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven, they are not describing the beginning of the reign of Christ, but the moment in which we are judged by how faithfully we have obeyed our king. 
And so the book of Acts is about how to obey your king. And the start of the book of Acts starts with Jesus sitting on the great throne and the people recognizing it. And it's almost as if Luke looks at the audience, he pans from Jesus, and he pans to us. And he says, hey, it's time. Welcome to the revolution. And these guys, these men and women, will charge into the world. And these are ideas that Rome will not be equipped to deal with. And it will topple their entire kingdom and force them to interact with it in different ways. So this is the start of that journey. This is the beginning of the book of Acts. Why don't we take some time and take communion to respond to all of this. The communion servers, you guys can go and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, Communion has two elements. There's bread and there's wine. It's the body of Christ broken for you. It's the blood of Christ poured out for you, for your salvation, for your healing, um, to make you whole. And he's inviting you into this table. He's inviting you not just to be filled and to be healed and to be made whole again, but also to take part in it and say, this is how salvation enters into the world, not through the picking up of swords and shields and charging in to overthrow oppressors, but instead allowing ourselves to be broken and poured out for those around us as needed, as a response to human suffering. Um, And so our communion servers are going to come, and here's how this goes. We spend some time in prayer. Um... It's okay if it gets noisy. It's fine. Um, if you need to talk to some people around you, confess and, and deal with some of the things um, out loud or the things you've just heard. If you need to spend time in repentance and prayer or celebration, all of that is great. Um, and then whenever you're ready, come with somebody, please, to the table, to the communion. We have communion servers everywhere. Take a piece of bread, rip it off, dip it in the wine, and eat it. Is the body of Christ broken for you? the blood of Christ poured out for you. Today we're going to have some of the, uh, the, the what we call the prayer team. They're going to be up here. Um, if you need prayer, if you need somebody to listen, if you need somebody to rejoice with and just to, hey, here's what's going on. Can we shout, uh, can, we, can we spend some time in prayer and, and thank God for this gift? And it will be up here. I'll be up here if you want to talk. Whatever it is that you need, um, the room is yours. And then whenever you're finished, you can be, feel free to be on your way. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this place and these people. Fill us up so that we can be poured out. Teach us what it means for you to be king in our minds. Keep us constantly aware of the fact that you are, you are king, you are on the throne, and that our role here is very, very specific to be witnesses to that in this world. Thank you, Father. I pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus, grace and peace.